You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we got one of our favorite guests coming back here. We know that in our world today we are seeing young people going off to college and losing their faith. So I think we gotta do something to equip them. Well, how soon do we start? Maybe we should start really soon, and maybe there's a really good resource out there for children. And indeed, there is. And that one is, if you like cold case Christianity, well, now there is cold case Christianity for kids. And by the same author, J. Warner Wallace. Who is he? Well, he's been speaking publicly for over 15 years, from small seminars to keynote appearances at major national events. His investigative work as a detective has been highlighted on local and national television programs like Dateline, Fox News, and Court TV. In fact, he's been on Dateline more than any other detective in the country, and he hosts a weekly television show on NRB TV, and he appeared in God's Not Dead 2. <clears throat> he has an interest in the arts and attended California State University at Long Beach, earning a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in Design, then a Master's in Architecture from UCLA. And so his presentations are designed to be powerfully visual in nature. He tries to use his background as an artist to communicate difficult concepts in a captivating way. He served as a police officer and detective for over 25 years, as a patrol officer, served on a street-level narcotics unit and SWAT, worked for gang detail and the career criminal surveillance team, and eventually became a robbery homicide detective. He's been investigating cold case homicides exclusively for many years. As a result, his presentations employ the techniques he learned as an investigator. He tries to use his background as a detective to teach audiences about the nature and power of evidence. He was a committed atheist until the age of 35, but once he became a Christian, he quickly became interested in Christian theology, entered seminary at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, and eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies. He's presently an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University. His presentations are rooted in the classic orthodox truths of scripture. He tries to use his background as a pastor to encourage audiences about the reliability of the Bible and the evidence for God's existence. And, as you can tell, he's also an author. He's contributed articles via Project Study Bible for Students. He's the author of Cold Case Christianity, and related book Live Alive, and God's Crime Scene. And he's working on a series of children's books, and he's got another one out now, Forensic Faith, if I'm remembering correctly, which I do have a copy of. Yes, I'll be reading and reviewing it sometime, having him back on to discuss it. He's been with his wife, Susie, for 37 years. They have two boys and two girls. In their spare time, they run, enjoy the beaches near their homes in Southern California, and take walks with their trusty Corgi, Bailey. So, Jim, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. So, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, it's kind of by accident, really. I, I was uh, working uh, investigations for years, and, and during that time, I became a Christian. 
and uh, really by examining the Gospels in the way that I describe in uh, Cold Case Christianity. And after doing that, you know, eventually you end up, if you've got kids and you're in church, you're probably going to end up serving in some position with kids. And mm-hmm. I did as well. My, my kids were about six or seven when uh, I got saved. And they're, they're adults now. They're 28 and 26. But back in those days, you know, you always need help in children's ministry, it seems like. So so we sat still very long in children's ministry with our kids. Eventually, they're going to ask you to teach a class. And so we did that. And then ultimately ended up uh, on staff at the church uh, in children's ministry. And then as that kids got older, we just graduated up with them in our, our assignments there and, and eventually went to another church where I served as the youth pastor. And, and my kids were at that time probably junior high through high school. And then ultimately we planted a church with all uh, maybe you know 17 to 25-year-olds were in our church of about 50. Uh, and we never let it grow above the, the number of 50. We Every time we got to about 60, we would uh, start another cell church. And we did that for five years. Um, and then I wrote this book. Now, the book came as an accident, actually. We were training high schoolers uh, on one of our annual trips to Berkeley. And we would take these trips uh, repeatedly. And eventually, uh, Sean McDowell, Josh's son, um, heard about us. And he was a local teacher here in our area, a high school teacher. And he wanted to take those trips, too. So we would start to kind of either go with him or uh, train for him as part of his training. Pro- I was with him, as, as a matter of fact, on one of these trips to Berkeley when I was teaching his students um, the contents of, of cold case Christianity. And he was the one who said, hey, you should write a book about that. And so I kind of fell into it. it. It wasn't really something I planned on doing. It was just something that evolved out of the work we were doing with young people. Now, when you say kids, you mean things like, you mean age like teenager and such, right? Well, I mean, when I say, I, you know, usually I'll use the word students when I'm talking about, uh, you know, student ministries. And when we talk about student ministries, we're really talking about probably everything from junior high through uh, high school. And when I was a student, uh, you know, I was a youth pastor, I, I was in charge of 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grades. So that those are the grades that I, I happen to be serving in. But what you discover is that most of those students who, who first have – questions or doubts or concerns about what they believe in related to Christianity, most of that stuff happens really early. And you'll you'll see it happening um, really in the, in the junior high school years, which means that by the time you're through your elementary school and your seventh or eighth grade, you're starting to at least be exposed to other points of view. Uh, mm-hmm. It may be more exposed to what's happening in the culture what your friends are thinking or what they believe. And so ultimately, I think we have to answer the questions for students a lot earlier than we used to think. As a matter of fact, I remember Josh telling me once at a uh, at one of the national conferences, I think it was the one in, in, uh, in North Carolina uh, for SES, we were there uh, doing that conference, and he mentioned that he was getting questions now. Because here's Josh McDowell who's been doing youth ministry for, for forever, right? right? And he said he's been getting questions now that he used to get from college-age students. He is now getting from junior hires. Mm-hmm. And that does show you the kind of shift of the information age and the compression of these generations where the technology is compressing generations and making that period of time shorter and shorter. Where it used to be that we always thought of generations as being 15 to 20 years. Well, now there's not much difference. You know, my, my mom, who's in her 70s, is becoming— Coming as technologically uh, savvy, 
as a five-year-old who's been raised in the digital generation. So what's happening isn't from a behavior perspective. There's not much difference right now from uh, junior hires and how they, they navigate the technology and college students. So it's time for us to start treating junior hires uh, and answering their, their objections at where they really are. Yeah, but Jim, these kids are going to Sunday school and things like that. I mean, isn't Sunday school enough? Well, I mean, you could say you could argue this isn't isn't church enough. I mean, but most of us who who recognize our role, I remember when I was working uh, as a gang detail officer uh, for years, we were we would do these community outreach uh, meetings where parents would come and say, "Hey, what are you guys doing to keep our kids out of gangs?" And you know, there was only a few of us who were working the gang detail to begin with. There were thousands of kids out there involved in gang activity. The reality is that that responsibility for kind of raising up our kids is is really falls first and foremost on parents. And that's also true of raising your kids spiritually. I, mean, I, I can't, as a youth pastor, be solely responsible for what it is, how it is your your kids develop spiritually. That's that's I don't have enough time with them. Number one and number two. They're going to catch a lot of this rather than be taught a lot of this from their environment, and that has to be us as parents. So I think what, what for me it meant was, yes, your youth ministries have to shift and start answering these questions. But two, uh, as a church, we have to kind of act as a family in unison to, mm-hmm. to, to love our kids enough to want to make them our priority. But then three, uh, parents have got to really start um, – accepting this uh, challenge which is that that our the spiritual formation of our kids we, we all take it seriously we all believe it's important but but we may not if we were to go back and list the number of hours you spent this week driving your kids compare that to the number of hours you spent this week feeding your kids compare that to the number of hours this week you spent helping your kids with their homework now somewhere put down the number of hours you spent this week teaching your kids how to, to defend what they believe as christians i'll bet that that number is uh, probably on the bottom of the list in terms of number of hours we spend doing something with our kids. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is say, okay, look, if we had a resource out there that was uh, could be self-directed to a certain extent, but could help parents engage the topics, engage the material, and be interactive with their kids, it has to be more than just a book you give your kids. So what we tried to do is design something that reads really quickly, that is interactive for kids, even if they're self-directed, but also is directly correlated correlated to the adult books. And online, we have an academy that connects these two uh, resources. So mm-hmm. if you're an adult who's interested in this stuff, well, you're going to be a couple steps ahead of your kids because you're reading the adult version. But each chapter of the adult version is then reflected in the student version. So you can sit with your kids and kind of walk them to the material. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you've shared some of my material from time to time. And I remember once you share once and even comments them on your own blog was something I wrote years ago about how in our churches it seems more than informing our youth and our adults for that matter, we're more into entertaining our youth. And that's not going to cut it in today's day and age. I, I spoke at a New Orleans conference and said, okay, let's consider everything we've got that we say we're offering our kids. We are taking them to, say, uh, laser tag events, pizza parties, Christian concerts, things of that sort. Now, on the other side, what's the world offering them? The whole idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay, I mean, not to put rock and roll in that category, but you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Which side is going to win in this one, ultimately? And when you look at 
how kids want to fit in with their peers and such, unless we give them really good incentive beyond pizza parties and such, they're going to want to go the way of the world. Well, I think part of, part of this is that, you know, you, I recognize that there's a there is a, a, a true need and all of us have this, right? We have to be engaging. The material has to be engaging. I mean, the approach we take has to be engaging because let's face it, um, if we think we're, it, it, all of us will default toward comfort and away from pain on opposite extremes, right? Right. And sometimes pain can just be boredom. You know, right. you can feel like that's enough pain for people to want to migrate towards something that's at least not boring. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important for us to be passionate about how we feel about these things, to be passionate about how we engage the material, but also to feel figure out why does this why should this matter to students why should they care at all and and find a way to throw the material and look a lot of the stuff we're talking about if we're going to talk about well why do we believe christianity is true it's at some point it's going to come down to why do you believe that that text that describes jesus of nazareth is authoritative why do you believe it's telling us the truth well mm-hmm. if you think about the manner in which we could prove it to be true a lot of it uh, is done uh, classically and academically by by historians and theologians and textual critics and those are the three groups probably that are least interesting to students i'll just be yeah. honest with you you know if you said hey come on on saturday we're going to have a historian come on on saturday we're going to have a theologian we're going to have a, a, a textual criticism or a textual uh, uh critic or somebody who's an expert in textual analysis oh my gosh uh that's probably not going to engage students it's not going to get them and especially when they're saturated in a sense of immediacy that the that the, uh, that the information age has offered, and a sense of instant entertainment for short time, attention spans, uh, these are things that we, as youth pastors, we all have to. And, and by the way, I, I suspect that all youth pastors have felt this and have done their best to address it. The problem is that sometimes you think, well, I know that uh, in the world, at least culturally, I know that pizza does work. Well, look, I'm not opposed to that. I'm yeah. more than happy to have pizza at the uh, at the uh, event. I'm more than happy to to do the things that engage students on a very visceral level. Yeah. But at some point, I'm going to have to throw this ball in a way that makes them want to catch it. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think we're trying to do when we when we uh, kind of reshape everything through the lens of a homicide investigation or reshape everything through the lens. Of, well, look, what if I told you? We've got a resource out there that'll teach your kids how to be detectives. I mean, using the very skill set that we learn when we become detectives. We learn these. We start in the academy. We learn certain principles. Then we learn it in thirty years of working with bad guys. Uh, those are certain skill sets mm-hmm. that you learn. Well, what if I told you there's a resource out there that'll teach your kids how to be detectives? Now, at the same time, they're going to learn that the Christian worldview is true. But I don't want it to feel like the whole thing is about. Uh, you know, one and not the other. And that's the approach we've tried to take with our children's resources. We want to engage them in narratives, engage them in stories. They're one of the characters, uh, along with other characters who are in a, uh, an, like, like an Explorer Academy, learning from a master detective, a guy who I used in my books as a name that p- appears in my adult books. I had a senior partner for years that this character is based on. And uh, so I just I just try to bring this to life in a way that's mm-hmm. um, like not not just okay, hear the five facts about you know five apologetics arguments because I don't think the students really are even interested in those, mm-hmm. but I've got to come at them a different way. Now in the end, my hope is that we've equipped them to think well, and and that they'll apply that to their Christian worldview. Yeah, you're certainly right that the book is short enough to read in, for instance, an evening. I'm pretty confident that's what I did, in fact, and so students could come to a 
a whole series in various youth groups and such and discuss something different every week. And uh, when I was growing up, I did read a lot of mysteries. I read all the Hardy Boys books that I could find at the library. And then when that was done, I went for all the Nancy Drew books because, hey, you probably contain a girl of their mysteries, okay? And right. now, I, whenever a new Mary Higgins Clark book comes out, I'm there at the library wanting to order it already. It's because I, I love a good mystery. Now, when you write this book, fortunately, your mystery doesn't get too heavy for kids. It's not, hey, there was a murder taking place outside the back of a school or something. Your mystery is much more simple, and there's no clear resolution for readers they can figure out me, and that's the mystery of a missing skateboard, as it were. Right, and so we knew that we use a lot of analogies and a lot of our, our actual cases from from our work in law enforcement in the adult books. And so a lot of those are troubling. A lot of those are, are cases where I've even had people online say that they thought they were too graphic, which I didn't think they were when I wrote them. But there are cases that have appeared on Dateline and the, the work I've done. But we knew we couldn't take that approach with kids. So each one of these books, we just finished the second book, which is God's Crime Scene for Kids. Uh, each of these books is really about uh, a mystery that is within their kind of grasp in terms of their age group. Remember, we're trying to target here eight to 12 year olds. And the reason why we think that's important is because those are the four years that lead you into junior high. If we can give you a strong thinking foundation and a strong evidential foundation before you get to junior high, I think you'll be okay. Uh, And you'll know that some of these objections you might hear from your friends, you've already asked and answered as a detective, especially the stuff that's going to be in God's crime scene uh, for kids. I think that's going to be really important. So, so what we did was, you know, it's true as an adult, you know, you and I, we can crank this thing out in an evening, but uh, but what we've seen so far is that uh, the students in that eight to 12 range will take, you know, probably, um, much longer to get through it because each, there's eight chapters. It might take eight nights. But what we like about it so far from what we're hearing in the feedback is because there's this mystery about the skateboard that draws chapter by chapter to a close, mm-hmm. students want to get to the end. Mm-hmm. They want to see how they solve the mystery. And there's sets of skills they're going to learn along the way, which just so happen to be the same skills you would use to solve other uh, historical mysteries or historical claims. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that in the end, what we see is that as especially as people have been using it in the school setting right where christian schools have adopted it and said okay we're going to use it over the course of even eight weeks where along with everything else they're doing they'll have the kids read one chapter a week and when they go online to coldcasechristianityforkids.com they'll find there's an academy there that has 10 sessions all have videos all of them have downloadable uh, fill-in sheets all of them have downloadable activity sheets and all of them have parent guides chapter by chapter so they can the parent can read the adult book know how to get ready for that have some key questions to ask if they wanted to discuss the topics and all of that is offered for free at the website all you need is the book in order to get going so that's the idea anyway behind it all yeah, you're certainly right about mystery. I mean, like I've said, whenever uh, the new Mary Higgins Clark book comes in, I'm going to read it immediately, and usually I'm telling Harry, okay, let me be for a while. I have to know who did this crime. I just have to do it. And if I have to stay up late reading a book to find out who did it, I better stay up late reading a book to find out who did it. If I can't do it at night, I'll be going to bed thinking, okay, now so-and-so did this, but so-and-so did that, and such, such. Because mysteries do have a way of drawing people in. I mean, I know you work on it, but I'm wondering if it's still the same for you. Like, if you watched a mystery novel on TV or you read a 
three novel period. Yeah, I think that um, it is true for me. I, if, if you have, if I think if you were to look at the genre of movies that are out there, mm-hmm. the ones that are the most popular are probably those movies that that and and shows and and literature. At least it's a huge genre of mysteries, right. um, and and those are the kinds of things that. Um, I think artists engaging, right? Comedy is also engaging. So there's lots of different ways to throw this ball. So, for example, you and I both know that there are people out there doing this work who, uh, like Andy Bannister. I mean, Andy is one of the funniest people I've ever interviewed oh, gosh, or ever yes. talked to. Okay. So so what's great about Andy is that he, he takes it from a different direction, which is, I think, every bit as important and every bit as engaging. And I thank God for people who have found different um, uh, ways in to the same subject matter uh, using their using their expertise what's great about andy is that you may not even know what andy's background is or what andy's expertise is that gives him a leg up and a voice in this community but what you do know is he's engaging and he's entertaining and he's funny and he he's he is disarming and he has a way a way that's all his own and uh, that's what we're looking for in each one of these kinds of books is to figure, look, we've got to stay in our lane. Our lane is that we work homicides. We work investigations. That's what I do for a living. That's never going to change. And I could approach it some other way, but it wouldn't be genuine and it wouldn't be me. Mm-hmm. So in the end, these kinds of resources, we try to stay in our lane. And that's, mm-hmm. that is our lane. Our lane is this, um, this background uh, in investigations. Yeah, when I read uh, Andy's book about the atheists who didn't exist, which, by the way, for listeners, we have interviewed him on that book, I was laughing out loud at several places and said, you got to hear what what he said to him. This this is so gold. Every time I turned the page and there were footnotes, I was celebrating. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's true. I'm also thinking about my own ministry partner, J.P. Holding of Tectonics, who makes Mm -hmm. videos on YouTube that are cartoons and very entertaining Ali and I have done a few voices for them wow that's awesome mm-hmm. now one of my friends did email me knowing that you were coming on and went to ask a question about okay. you know, when we engage with online skeptics and such this kind of thing and that's a question about burden of proof claims because usually it's said that if we're making the Christian case where we have a burden of proof now my thinking is that if an atheist is making the atheist case or anyone's making any case, whoever makes any claim has the burden of proof. What would you say about that? Well, and that's why you'll see that some atheists will say that their position that makes no claims. That mm-hmm. they they they'll say that we don't we just don't believe we believe in we don't believe it's not a it's a lack of belief it's not a, a positive affirmative belief and of course the reason why they take that approach is simply that that's that's they don't want for example to um, have to deal with the burden of proof issue if they make a positive claim but this is what it really comes down to remember all investigations involve burdens of proof Mm -hmm. but the burdens of proof are not in a vacuum they're related to the crime scenes uh here's what i mean by that you you walk into a crime scene and you see several pieces of evidence in the scene and something has happened so your burden of proof is not just uh, you're not just trying to describe a cause it's a cause of what happened in this crime scene so what happens is you get into that crime scene and you say, okay, I see 10 pieces of evidence. You're great. Now the question is, given those 10 pieces of evidence, what is the best explanation for what caused this to occur based on the evidence in the scene? This is what we do. Now, if I come up with a suspect in mind that I think is 
the suspect who best accounts for these 10 pieces of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yet my partner says, no, I think you're wrong. I've got a different suspect of mine. And I think that that other suspect is a better explanation for these 10 pieces of evidence. Well, as it turns out, each of us has got a burden of proof to, to explain why we think our suspect is, in fact, the real suspect. In mm -hmm. other words, uh, each of us has to explain what the cause is. Now, right. now it turns out we were living in a universe, and in this universe there are, are pieces of evidence, and all of us have to explain, or at least have to, if we want to resol resolve in our own mind a proper worldview, we're going to have to explain uh, how these pieces of evidence got here. What is the cause of everything we see in the universe. So from that perspective, everyone has an equal burden of proof. Now, I happen to be a theist in that I believe that God is the best explanation for the stuff that I see in the universe, and therefore I am more than willing to take on the burden of proof to demonstrate why I think that is so. But if you're a naturalist who does not believe in God and you believe that you're uh, that the natural forces in the universe, which are simply physics and chemistry acting on space, time, and matter, can explain everything you see in the universe, the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the appearance of design and biology, consciousness, free agency, objective moral truths, even evil, fine, then you have a burden of proof also to show me how all of that can be properly explained with nothing more than a space, time, matter, and the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, yeah, we've all got an equal burden of proof. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm more than willing to accept my burden of proof, but no one gets off the hook if you think that, that you don't have a burden of proof because you don't believe there's a God. Well, it's because you believe that, that the natural forces of the universe can cause everything we see. Great. There is your burden of proof. You now have to rely on those uh, uh, th th that recipe alone to explain everything you bake in the universe. Mm -hmm. And it does, as it turns out, that's an equal burden of proof for both sides. Well, I can remind you, when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, we got Jay Warner Wallace here talking about his book, Cold Case Christianity for Kids. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about Jesus in comparison to world religions other than Christianity. And we're going to be looking at the book, God Among Sages, and its author, Ken Sampers from Reasons to Believe, will be joining us. He's been on before talking about UFOs and resurrection appearances. But next week, we're going to have him on talking about Jesus and in his book, God Among Sages. For now, let's get back to Jay Warner Wars with Cold Case Christianity for Kids. Something I like about what you were saying earlier also is about how you're teaching kids how to investigate these questions for themselves. Because too often, I mean, you probably get this just like I do. You have people email questions, and you could give a pat answer if you wanted to. And such, but I find more often it's better rather than just give an answer to guide someone to an answer so that they're not always dependent on you and so they can know how to reach these conclusions on their own. Yeah, that's right. We're trying. It's, it's that old cliche we talk about, right? Where we talk about it's better to you know, to, to, to help students learn how to think right. than to uh, tell them what to think. And so that's that's really what we've tried to do uh, in this resource. We we know that now. Of course, at each chapter, we're going to show them how to apply this um, investigative process that we're going to teach them mm -hmm. towards the Christian worldview. So in the end, yeah, we we land in a particular place because that's where I landed when uh, I actually started to do this. This work. But what I, what I think is more important is that each chapter has the title, bears a title, and uh, has a duty to teach us a particular uh, skill set. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what we're trying to do in each chapter. And that's really where I think the value and the weight of the uh, 
the, the, the kind of value of the book is, is in teaching uh, students um, how to think well. Uh, then they can apply that to almost anything, right? So that's really the goal. You know, I, I find some people are very hesitant to get youth into this kind of thing. Maybe they think it might be too heady or too intellectual for them and such, but I find that when youth get the chance to discuss these kinds of questions and such, they really enjoy doing it. Because let's face it, the questions are there. We can't deny that they're there. And sticking our heads in the sand isn't going to help them. But if we tell them that their churches are a safe place, as it were, where they can go to their questions about being cast aside or anything of that sort, we're doing them a huge favor. Yeah, and I think that um, it's it's true. If you study how people adopt um, new ideas, how people adopt information, how people adopt new uh, behaviors and technology. What you discover is um, that that you have to have an easy in. You have to have a, a, a way that is um, uh, an easy first entry level. If you don't do that, if the, if the bar is too high coming in, uh, people will say, "Well, that's just too high." They won't even, they'll be too discouraged to even start. So, but at some point, uh, you don't leave them at the easy with at an easy level. We can raise the bar once you're in. We can raise the bar quite significantly. And what we've seen with students is uh, kind of an approach I have to take is an easy in but a high out. So, so what we want is, yeah, there's a, I'm going to teach you a topic. And, and everyone kind of wants to, the 140-character Twitter version, you know, easy entry, uh, memorable, uh, quick response kind of what's – give it to me in a nutshell. I, I get that, and we're going to help you with that. But at some point, I want you now to step through this in a way that is actually much higher in terms of its thinking. And when it's done, I think I can – get students to a very high level and guess what if as long as you're engaging along the way and they feel like they've got something that and there's a strategy for that of course and a lot of it has to be visual i mean it just does for students because we are on a uh think about the last time you saw somebody using a phone and all they did with that that piece of technology in their hand was raise it up to their ear and talk in it. I mean, that's just not the way we're using technology. We, we are an entirely visual uh, uh, community that is uh, been transformed by the glowing rectangle, right? I mean, that thing in your hand is entirely visual. So I think we have to take a strategy. And when you do kids' books anyway, you know you're going to have to illustrate them at a much higher level. So what we try to do is as I looked at that, that um, uh, it's an interesting process, right? When you write adult books, you illustrate them where you find it necessary to illustrate a concept that really can't be described in a way that's as powerful as it can be seen. So we do that with the adult books, right? So we've got an idea. We want to show you a timeline. We want to show you something. We illustrate it. With children's books, it's a little different. I'm really looking at uh, kind of ratios of text to image, uh, because I know that I'm trying to move young people uh, along at a pace that will be dictated by the ratio of text to image. And so for us, I know when I write this thing, I, I want to know immediately how many pages are we trying to hit, because I want to format the text even on my document that I'm writing on, the one that I'm actually creating the book with, I want to format that text in a way that I can see what the final typesetting is going to look like because that's going to determine for me the pacing of illustrations. So like, for example, when we did God's crime scene, I knew after writing that book and taking the time to insert the side boxes and all the little places I wanted to highlight. And then I, I, I formatted it graphically so I could see what the thing looks like. And I realized, wow, I did a calculation. I knew I needed 87 illustrations to get the ratio to text a relationship that I wanted. Uh, 
uh, on the book. And so that's, I think one of the strategies you take with kids is a little bit different as you're, as you're trying to speed up or facilitate the read or the pace of the read by how many uh, images you place in the text, right? And of course, there's going to be some images you just have to have because those are concepts you're trying to teach visually. But a lot of those images are just ways of you to keep this thing narrated so they feel like they're watching something on their phone as well as as readings. Because believe it or not, this is an age group that has, you know, this is, we talk about Gen Z, right? They're digital natives. That's the first description you almost always hear about Gen Z is that they are digital natives. So we have to, I think, recognize at least the visual nature of the digital world in which we live. So that's what we try to do with these books. Yeah, I've got your book right here in my hand, Cold Case Christianity for Kids. And as I'm looking through, I'm thinking that, you know, someone like myself, I'm familiar with this. I'm going through, and as you can know, most of this stuff is simple to me because I've, I've learned this years ago. But I'm thinking many parents, they could just as well be going through this for the first time as well and learning to discover these steps with their kids. Well, there's no doubt that we, we knew that... Um, you know, sadly, this is how we are as parents, right? We're busy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may recognize a need that we want to meet with our kids, but we may not. Um, yeah, sadly, I think sometimes we just say, hey, was there a book I can give my kids? If I said, well, no, actually, there's a book I want you to read so that you can teach your kids. Well, good luck with that. You're not going to be as effective because a lot of people are just looking for that book they can give their kids. So I understand that. And we recognize that a lot of these folks may be reading this content for the first time. Mm -hmm. And this may actually be all they ever read in an apologetics resource. I don't know that they'll ever read any more than this. They might not. I can also tell you this. um, You know, it's graphically – Uh, If you flip through the pages, it feels like, oh, this would be fun to read. This would be easy to read. So so when we take – I mean uh, recently we were at um, uh, University of Kentucky, Lexington. We we did uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison the next week. And I noticed in one of these, I brought nothing but the adult books to Madison. I brought – uh, you know, just the books that we typically would sell to adults. At the uh, uh, Kentucky uh, event, I brought the students – I don't know why I even did it. I brought them uh, Cold Case Christianity plus the Cold Case Christianity for kids. The publisher sent like two boxes of the kids' book. So I get there, and the kids' book is on the table next to the adult book. Well, I mean, we sold out all those kids' books to college students. And then I got a, a, an email from the leader of the college student fellowship there, who said uh, Christian student fellowship there, who said, "Hey, um, can you send us another couple of boxes of the kids' book?" Because the students really found that to be now. Now, why? Why? Why would college students want a book written for eight to twelve year olds? Well, it's because if you pick it up and you flip through it, you realize it's fast. Um, if it has, it seems to have the same chapter titles. <laughs> it seems to be like it's the same content, mm-hmm. and of course, it's not as nearly as you know as the same content. But you, you get the point. Yeah. And if you read it and look at it, it looks like it's a faster read, mm-hmm. and it's illustrated in a much more robust way. So I think that you know. That's just one of those things that uh, that you learn as you do this. You, you know, of course, I would never have learned any of that had I not started writing children's books. But now that we have, we're kind of learning as we go. It might make the adult books even better. Now, I like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host. We got Jay Warner Wars here. And if you like these shows and want to help support them, keep them going, and such, keep this ministry strong, go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there's a sidebar there, and you'll see help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click the link in there, and you get taken to uh, 
Mike and Debbie Lacona's page at Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Make a donation. And it's tax deductible and then very important. You talk to me or Ari or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. There, make sure we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. You can go on Amazon and buy some ebooks that I've written or co written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters or one I've written, The Apostle, The Creed of the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. And then another thing you can do, and guys, I'm mainly out here speaking to you on this one. We have a friend who sells jewelry for us. You can go, the access code is love. If you need help, get in touch with me. I'll get you in touch with a person who can guide you through everything. And everything you purchase from this jewelry store, 25% of that goes to Deeper Waters. So guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but for a lady in your life, she probably really loves jewelry. And if it's your wife, you can buy some jewelry that can make up that big recent screw-up that you just did. Or... You can buy some that will make up that big future screw-up that I know you're going to make. Now, Jim, do you have any organization you'd like to speak or donate to? Well, I think that uh, I'm glad to be on your show, and I hope they will take you up on that offer and get over there to to, to Mike, who's your father-in-law, is a great mm-hmm. guy, and uh, donate so they can get to you and fund this program. Yeah, for sure. That would be a great idea. Okay. Now, you know, something else about this book that I think would be helpful is uh, – I'm a reader. My family, my wife's not a reader like I am. She went through one of my books. She probably bored silly with it and such. And one of the things I think she'd say about some of the books I read is too many big words. And yet, if you read through this one, I don't think you're going to find a lot of big words, are you? Yeah, and that's part of it, right? I mean, part of it is how do we, and, and this is why I wrote this book with my wife, because I knew that she would uh, catch a lot of the language issues that, and and just remember what it was like when we were, you know, walking our own kids through uh, through books. Nobody, I, I never knew anybody who read to their kids as much as, as my wife did to our kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. some of the books she read were higher level than others. A lot of the books she read were pretty straightforward and have become very culturally engaged. Some of the best books that have been engaged by the culture, like, for example, Laura Ingalls' uh, classics on Little House on the Prairie. Uh, you know, this has been, they've made movies uh, and the television series, and, and they've been read by millions of people. And if you were to open the, the, any of the Little House on the Prairie uh, kind of books, which are classic, you'll see that the language is very straightforward. Um, at the same time, if you've ever read any of C.S. Lewis's books for kids or his space trilogy, which my kids went through, uh, you know that that language is much more uh, refined and mm-hmm. uh, a much higher level. So so I just knew that the, the, the one person who would have the best sense of, of flow and uh, the kind of language we would use would be Susie. She's always been my, my first editor on any of these uh, things we've ever done. So I knew that she would be the first person I would want to take a look at it. And uh, in fact, that's that's why we, we co-wrote all these books. I just felt like she um, had a better sense. Uh, first of all, she's 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 that first editor on all the adult books, so I knew mm-hmm. that she was familiar with the material. Then the question became, well, and also little things like you, might, I might not think that that this would be too troubling, or uh, to use as a, a scenario would be appropriate or inappropriate for a particular age group. But moms are far more sensitive about those kinds of issues, and so she kept it. Uh, she kept that age range, that mm-hmm. target age range, in uh, view at all times, and that was helpful. Yeah, I, I also noticed in the back you've got 
these uh, questionnaire things that you can fill in the blanks and such. And after that, you can go to a website and get a certificate of promotion. And I, I think that's really good because, I mean, people love getting things that shows they've made an accomplishment and such. I mean, if my wife was even in a therapy group today and they gave her a sticker, she'd be thrilled at that somehow. I mean, it might sound like a simple little thing, but we love getting those things. Yeah, and I think kids are, at least when I was growing up, there were always these couple of things I was intrigued with, right? If you if you could mail away and get like that, that detective decoder wristwatch, or you could get um, a little badge, you know, or something that that uh, kind of rec- at least recognized the authority or, or something you had accomplished, uh, those were things that were always popular. And that's why, you know, at the end of of any long process, uh, when you go to the Sheriff's Academy, you're going to graduate. And and you're going to get your job when you graduate. That's enough of a reward, right? You're going to get to wear the uniform and actually do the job. But every one of us also gets a really cool certificate, mm-hmm. and many of which I've had hanging in my office for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every time we uh, get through some new level of, of achievement, uh, if it's a you know kind of a nationally recognized achievement or locally, whatever it may be, you're probably going to get some. And yeah, you know, what do you do with those things? They uh, they were for a lot of those things were in my attics. You know, uh, I, I didn't really hang a lot of this stuff until I retired uh, because I just didn't know what to do with all of it. But then as you look at it, you realize, wow, you know, that was a lot of work that went into each one of these cases that they got recognized. And so it is kind of nice to have it and go, yeah, that was, I remember that case. And that's where I met so-and-so. And, and, you know, that you recall all the people you met too. Well, that that's, a, I think, a natural process for all of us. We all feel like that. And I think kids especially um, love the idea of earning something that becomes the goal. And I said to the students in this, in the first video online, I said, hey, here's the goal. You're going to read through this chap- this book chapter by chapter, and you're going to learn a bunch of stuff, and you're going to master a bunch of skills, and you're going to demonstrate that with the fill-in sheets that you download from this website and with all of the activity sheets. And these are pretty – we tried to create some activities that we thought would be fun, that would be related to the topic, and how we des- decided which you know 10 – activities are we going to do we, you know some are fill-ins some are crosswords some are word searches some are mazes some are activity you know, well how do we decide what activities what we did was we went down locally to our grocery store and we uh went to the uh, cereal aisle where all the cereals are sold and we turned over all the cereal boxes and took a photograph of the back of every kid's cereal box because if you've ever eaten kids cereal you know in the back there's usually something to read or an activity you can do or some fun game and sure enough we discovered tons of these and we knew if these were actually being used by cereal companies today and were successful on their cereal boxes that they would probably be they would probably work for us so so we that's what we did we used those as inspiration and we just tried to kind of uh, mimic the different kinds of activities we found on cereal boxes and you could also go to restaurants and look at things like the kids menu and such and that's right they, they have those things like, I remember doing those things like that at restaurants and such and Heck, at this day, if I was, God forbid, somewhere without a book and all I had was the box of cereal, I'd be going through and just reading over that. And if there was a game on the back, all the better, I'd play it. 
Well, you see adults do that all the time, right? So oh, there's yeah. something in those games that we we actually, you know, I remember when I first had kids uh, thinking how lucky I was to be able to go through my childhood again as, you know, pretending as though I'm just doing it for the kids. But the reality is that most guys, when they open the first box of Legos with their sons, they are delighted to do so because they are just as excited about playing with the Legos as the kids are. So, yeah, I think there's something about the activities that are kind of ageless. Men never grow up. Our toys just change. That's very true. Sometimes the toys don't even change. You have just Legos. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, how many of us are going to see movies that we saw because they're things we grew up? I mean, new Ninja Turtles movie comes out. Usually, I want to see it. New Power Rangers movie came out last month. I went to see that with a friend. And heck, whenever new Avengers movie or something like that comes out, I'm already there wanting to see it. Yeah, I think there's something about, and that's and that's. And if you look at the kind of color of those movies, right? That's the thing you're trying to do with kids' versions of anything. So a lot of what makes a kid's version a kid's version is, is language and what kind of language you use with kids. It's it's making sure you pick a concept that is relatable. So solving a mystery that's appropriate for kids. It's it's about uh, pacing. Those movies are paced a certain way that other movies are not. So are children's books, and that that ratio of text to image is important. It's about colors on the cover. I think one of the reasons why, for example, at the University of Kentucky, all those uh, college students were so interested in the kids' version is because the cover is cooler. I mean, it just, yeah. it, it pops out, you know, it's more colorful. Uh, so we've been, you know, that's, you, you just, you kind of you learn these things, but as it turns out, um, those are things that are also uh, more and more true for adults, because as, as I say, the technology is shortening the gaps between generations, because mm-hmm. you can kind of look at generations as just blocks of time in which people are born, or you can look at generations in terms of the kinds of behaviors that occur in each block of time. And what's happened, it really is that we have compressed the behaviors uh, because the technology is compressing them. So I think that as we kind of write for, I don't know if you've ever noticed that sometimes publishers will push back on a book if they think it's written for um, for too old a crowd because they realize that, that the mm-hmm. technology is also making everyone kind of lower the bar so everything's more immediately accessible. Not to say that's a good thing, but what I'm saying is if we want to communicate to a culture, especially a culture of kids, we're going to have to recognize that. And I'll be the first to tell you, Nick, that you know that in my work, I've always said, we have to raise the bar for kids. We absolutely do. But you can do that and still be engaging. I think the one thing you can never – you can never compromise on is how engaging or – uh, inviting, how uh, exciting, uh, you know, how relevant is the material. You can't compromise on it. You can't think that, well, you know, if I'm going to teach, cal- this can't be like teaching calculus to kids. Because if it is, most kids are not going to be interested. It's got to be able to figure out a way that why is it that calculus would matter. Well, let's go to that thing that matters then and show you how calculus solves it. That's going to be a better approach. And that's yeah. what we have to do with this. Yeah. Right now, I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, my friend David Wood. I'm sure you know about his work with yeah. Act 17 Apologetics, where you, know, you could sit down and watch a video with a professor getting up and teaching you some stuff about Islam and such, and you, know, you might get something out of it and such, but when David Wood does a video on Islam, he makes it extremely entertaining. My wife and I love to watch those together, and we're getting an education at the same time. 
No, there's, that's very true. And, and David's one of those guys, if, if, I know that people are listening to your podcast, they're already familiar with his work, but he's one of those guys I, I want to elevate in my own uh, kind of social media as well, because uh, he does have a mastery of simplifying difficult concepts mm-hmm. and, uh, or simple, how should I say this, making more straightforward, complicated uh, concepts. So, mm-hmm. so if you look at David's work, it's, it's quick, it's, it's uh, not, um, is not overly technical in terms of its visual engagement. It's just simple things, simple diagrams that, that, that help you to see the relationship between things. He'll do that. Also, he's very entertaining, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's winsome. He's funny to listen to. He's hilarious. I, and a lot of that comes from the fact that David is incredibly smart. Mm. And, and what we're looking for, and I, I think you might notice this too, what we hope to do when we're write, uh, writing anything for kids is we want to write something smart. Right. Because you know that a lot that's been written for kids is doesn't make that a goal. Uh, what really is more is it is it fun? Is it engaging? It doesn't have to be smart, you know, to to hold my attention. And there's a lot of stuff out there that's not all that smart that 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 will hold the attention of young people. What we're trying to do here is is um, we know that this kind of stuff can be academic if we're not careful, but we don't want to sacrifice how smart it is to make it accessible. And that's what we're trying to kind of weigh that balance between smart and uh, engaging. Yeah, I'm thinking about how C.S. Lewis said that when kids play games many times, they play games as if they're adults in the games and such. And I think when we're trying to reach kids, we don't treat them like adults, but we treat them as if, because they are future adults, and we're preparing them, we want to teach them, treat them in such a way say, hey, you're smart enough to get this, we're not dumbing things down for you, but we're going to speak at your level, and we're going to help raise you up to the next one. Well, that's an, that, that's an important issue. Let me let me say something about that, because we, when we did the book, we, we knew we were going to develop characters, and these characters that we developed were going to be students who had an opportunity to go through a local um, like detective's academy for kids. Now, those kinds of things are actually out there, believe it or not. When I was in high school, uh, I was in an Explorer Academy in which I had to complete a 16-week um, Explorer Academy, um, and and that was a brutal experience. I mean, it was tough. And at the end of that, because we, uh, once you graduated, uh, you were able to volunteer in different areas of the police department that, that only Explorers had access to. Only those who had graduated from the Academy could do these kinds of things. Also, you could help. Like, we have a big parade every year in our city. And you would help work the parade in uniform. You know, there's a sense in which you were brought into the family of law enforcement, mm-hmm. even as a kid and as a student, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. So I, I knew when we drew the characters for this book for kids and we're targeting eight to 12 year olds. I decided that those characters would be in that 13 to 15 range. Although this is not a book for 13 to 15 year olds. This is a book for eight to 12. But I also know that. I want to raise the bar in terms of treat them with the respect that's due them. They're smart enough to get this material, but also pick role models as the characters of who they are going to be in just a couple of years. Not, Mm -hmm. you know, I just have all adult characters. You got to figure out where do I fit in that, that, uh, you know, uh, group of adults. We wanted to pick, the, the generation that or that that group of kids it was just maybe a few years ahead of our readers to see this is where you're going to be we want you to look at those kids as role models for you see yourself as the other 13 or 15 year old even though we know you may only be nine we intentionally wanted those those kids to be just a little bit older 
Because let's face it, I think that most kids think that older kids are somehow cooler or more informed yeah. or or they want to be more like the older kids. I noticed this when my kids were in youth group and they were the youngest kids because their dad was the pastor. They, they were always younger than the other kids in that group. And they always looked up to the high schoolers who were the kids that were in my group. So I'm, I'm taking, I'm trying to take advantage of that, that idea and, and have young kids uh, want to see themselves as, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so the, the kids are not identified as, as high schoolers or as junior hires. But if you look at the drawings, you'll see they, they appear to be just a slightly older than the, the kids we're trying to reach. Yeah. And as I was looking through the book here, just leaving back for the part, if I didn't want to just go for the whole book, Again, and I went through and just looked at the illustrations and looked at the detective school kit, toolkit sidebars and such things like that. I'd still get a whole lot out of it just by doing that. And that's one of the things, right, that we, that most of us as authors have kind of learned that, that at some point um, you'll see books that will – I just read a book recently uh, last week where – Every chapter at the end had one page that summarized the chapter. Now, that's good and bad, right? It's good and bad in the sense that if you uh, want to dive deep, and, and but sometimes people don't even dive deep. They'll just go to that last page in each chapter and read the last page, and they might miss the things you're trying to say along the way. So we didn't do it quite like that, but we, we took time along the way to hop out of the text and provide you with one memorable thing to, 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 to hold on to uh, and a way to kind of highlight it. Now, now when we do – we're getting ready to turn each one of these books into a series of curriculum for churches. And when we go to the curriculum stage, then we'll take, we have a, so for example, many of these books, uh, many of these chapters have sidebars that are called CSI, uh, you know, kind of CSI studies of scripture. Well, well, when we get to the curriculum aspect of this, each one of those will be blown out into an, an entire page where you'll be able to dive deeper into that passage of Scripture. But, but, but what we're trying to do is just kind of give you a lots of co- lots of content. That's why one one family probably took two months to go through the book because they really took time to address each opportunity. You know, with the sidebars and with the the, the kind of call outs and the stuff in the book, and plus all the uh, downloadable materials online. And they, they sent me pictures when they first started, and they sent me pictures at the end when all their kids had the academy uh, uh, graduation certificate in their hands. And it took about eight weeks to go through it, about a chapter a week. Now, you've got a Kindle version of a book as well. Is that going to have illustrations in it or not? Yes, it's all the illustrations are in both um, the Kindle version and the uh, adult uh, adult version. Or, I mean, sorry, the, the both the student version and the adult version both are in Kindle, and they're all fully illustrated. And so that's that's where I really think that the online printable materials are helpful, right? Because mm-hmm. also, you know, if you've got a family and and you're buying this book and you've got two kids, and both kids are going to go through the book, well, then they each get to print their own set of resources from the website. And they can make their own. The idea was to assemble a notebook. And that's one of the things that you do in an academy, right? When you're in the sheriff's academy or in the police academy, uh, people don't probably think about this, but we are required as cadets to uh, assemble a notebook. And uh, that notebook becomes something that either can be inspected. Some academies will have that. You have to turn that thing in. Some will just have the drill instructors inspect your notebook on occasion. Uh, I kept my notebook. Uh, when I graduated, it's it's huge. I have my dad's notebook, and I also have my son's academy notebook when he was in the police academy. I kept all three of those, and I kept those just as mementos. But I know that 
Why do I keep those? Because they, they to me, they, 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 they represent a, a body of work that I was very proud of uh, having completed back when I was in the academy. And so I kept those notebooks as kind of like a memento. And when I've never been in the garage or up in the attic, you know, all this time, now they're sitting on my shelf because I just feel like, wow, you know, that was a lot of work. Um, well, I, I, I've noticed that um, the same thing is happening with our students who take use this book. They, they print out all those materials, they assemble a, a notebook, and then that notebook kind of sits on their shelf for a while. And along with their certificate, because they recognize that they actually put a lot of work into those, what, 20 sheets of paper um, that are part of the book process. And, and so we wanted, that's why we said, hey, if you collect the notebook and you form a notebook, you are eligible to print that certificate. And um, we try to make a big deal out of it only because we know that how important it was to us as police officers, as adults. Well, Jim, it's always great to see you on here. I'm great to grateful to consider you as not just a fellow apologist but a good friend as well and I look forward to when we have you on here again I do have your book Forensic Faith here I plan on starting that sometime soon here uh, if someone wants to get Cold Case Christian for kids as of for this recording time the Kindle version is 645 a paperback version is 679 now, Jim if uh, if the audience wants to get in touch with you do you have a blog an email a website way they can do that Yes, it's coldcasechristianity.com. They can reach me there, and they'll see all the stuff we post, and there'll be links to all the books at coldcasechristianity.com. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Just, I think it's important for all of us to take on this duty we have, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I know if you're listening to this podcast, you already get that. But just remember, it starts a lot earlier than you think. And most of the time, when you ask people who have walked away from the faith in their college years, when they began to have their first years of doubt, some will point to as early as the age of 10, but that largest group is going to point to their teenage years, 12 to 15. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to get our kids ready even before that time of, of really uh, the first time that kids start to examine deeply why this might be true or why it might not be true. So I would just suggest we start a lot earlier than we used to think. I'd like to commend this source as an excellent one for kids, and I'd like to thank you for coming on here again, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks, I do too. I'll talk to you soon. I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Ken Sampras on talking about his book, God Among Sages. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.